Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller? I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today my guest is Julia Borston, senior media and tech correspondent for CNBC. Borston is no stranger to entertainment industry insiders. She's been CNBC's Hollywood correspondent for years. But during the pandemic, she found time to pursue a passion project writing a book about female leaders in business. Let me tell you, listeners, this is no breezy read, nor is it dominated by interviews with the usual suspects when it comes to women business leaders. Borston did her homework and her research. The book is organized by broad themes that are probed in depth. It's not platitudes about girl bosses. It's deeply reported with facts and figures to back up her assertions that female approaches to running companies are very often good for business. Borston has the receipts on how women leaders lead into innovation, sustainability, and have a knack for finding discrete markets where money is being left on the table because others don't see a need or profit potential. And she pulls no punches in calling out the venture capital community for the pitifully small volume of investment dollars that flow into female-led ventures every year. That's all coming up after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Hey, thanks for sticking around. We're back now with more on the power of women in leadership from CNBC's Julia Borston. Julia Borston, senior media and technology correspondent for CNBC, a face that Hollywood business watchers know well from her terrific reports and crack interviews with top CEOs. Julia Borston has written a book called When Women Lead, it is terrific. It is full of scholarship and data. It, this is not a breezy beach read. It is a deeply reported, really intelligent, and I'm going to underscore intelligent, look at what it means, the impact of women in business, what it means to have female leadership rising slowly, but rising up through the ranks in this country and, and around the world. It is a book with a truly global focus. It's a, I, I am just, absolutely staggered at the research and data that went into it. And I'm going to start with the question that everybody probably asks you. Julia Borstein, who is on CNBC all the time covering this most dynamic business, how on earth did you find the time to <laughs> write this deeply reported book? You know, I was very lucky um, that during the pandemic, I was safely at home with my family, and I was broadcasting from home. <laughs> As you know, I've seen you in all sorts of different cities around the country at different conferences and things, but my travel came to a halt, and I set up a little studio in my house, a studio which has since moved several times. <laughs> but gone were the, you know, the days on the road, 
gone were the afternoons and evenings out at events. I was really locked down. And um, I had started working on a book proposal before the uh, the pandemic started. And once the pandemic hit, I thought, I have this window. I'm at home. I'm not socializing. I'm not out on the road. I need to use this time and get this proposal out and get this book written. And I felt like I had this deadline looming. And I thought, any day now, any week now, the pandemic's going to be over. So I should really get as much done as I can now. So as a result, I was incredibly efficient. But the beauty for me of this time at home is that everyone was at home. And people who might have been really hard to get interviews with or hard to nail (laughs) down were available. And I did so many interviews with people when they were walking their dogs or when they were (laughs) hiding in their closet trying to get a break from their young children or when they were cooking dinner. And women just opened up to me. And I spent hours and hours on Zoom and on, on the phone in people's... It really felt like I was in their homes. And so... A, I had a lot more access. B, I think that the conversations ended up being much more intimate and personal because not only was I in their homes with them at this time um, when everyone was kind of going through something together, but also there was a sense that the world stopped Mm -hmm. and everyone was taking Mm -hmm. a step back and thinking about their purpose, Mm -hmm. thinking about why they were doing what they were doing. What was their management strategy? Why did they care about leading in a certain way? How do I connect with my employees? What are my goals? And so it was actually a really important moment for these leaders to think about what they were doing and also for me to connect with them and also see how they were facing the biggest challenges of our time. What initially inspired you to want to, to, want to look at this area? So I've been at CNBC for 16 years. I have the most amazing job. As you know, the media and tech industry has changed so much in that time. In Never that a dull years. moment. Never a dull moment. And I have these two projects that I love at CNBC. One is the Disruptor 50 list. I launched it over 10 years ago, and I wanted to look at the fascinating startups that were transforming business before they go public. CNBC is, of course, focused on public companies, but I had covered Facebook from the time it was relatively young through the IPO, and I thought there is no model for CNBC to look at these private companies long before the IPO. We need to be getting these companies and the types of technologies that they're representing on our viewers' radar early. So I created this list, and as a result, I've had the wonderful job of interviewing a lot of private company Mm, CEOs, mm -hmm. fascinating innovators Mm -hmm. over the past Mm -hmm. 10 years. So on one hand, I was interviewing all these amazing, innovative, tech-driven companies. And on the other hand, I had launched this other project that I love called Closing the Gap. And um, after the whole Time's Up Me Too movement, I thought, you know, we've told all these negative stories, but we need to be focusing on the solutions. We as a network need to be looking at the companies and individuals who are doing positive work to close gender and diversity gaps. So my colleagues and I created this franchise. It's online and it's on TV. And we told stories of ways that companies like Salesforce or PayPal were closing equity gaps in their pay and in promotion. So I was looking at all these stats about pay equity and, and all these things. And I kept on coming across these stats that seemed insane to me. And the one in particular that stuck out to me was the fact that Yes, women are now 8% of the Fortune 500. They are maybe 20% of boards, depending on when you cite that stat. But when it comes to venture capital funding, Mm -hmm. women over the past decade have gotten 3% on average of all venture capital dollars. I thought, this is bananas. This is bananas. The most recent stats were that 82% of all venture capital dollars went to companies without a single female co-founder. So that means that all these billions of dollars that are funneling into companies like Uber or Airbnb (laughs) that are going to change the way we live don't have women involved. So I thought this is crazy. 
I was interviewing women who had defied those odds for those female leaders. And I thought, I want to know how these women did it. And I was interviewing them for the Disruptor 50 list. So I thought, these women are, by definition, exceptional. And so I want to hear their stories and figure out how they did it. And every, I mean, it just goes, the, the venture capital stat, which is so, which is just so, like, stubborn and, annoy, and annoying, is that, like, when you, it's so incongruous with knowing as in the U, in the U.S. as well as in hugely in other areas, Asia, Africa, where is, you know, more than 50% of the entrepreneurship is coming from women's startup funds. So, that, you know, what message does, what message does that send? And it's, you know. Yeah. So. I mean, and look, 42% of all small businesses in the United States are run by women. There are clearly plenty of entrepreneurial women, but the fact that women last year, female founded companies got 2% of all VC dollars, that's crazy. And so, Yet the ones who were doing it and had managed to defy those odds are amazing. So I really sort of use the lens of this area where women have the least representation because in some ways they are most exceptional. So the book is full of lots of different stories. Mm -hmm. I talk about Sarah Hardin and Mm -hmm. Reese Witherspoon and Lena Waithe and Mm -hmm. some some CEOs of nonprofits. But I talk a lot about the tech industry just because the stats are so crazy and the women have to be so amazing to defy those odds. I mean, going just going deep into it, and what is it, again, the scholarship here is so impressive, is that you go into how that women who frame their, their pitches for, for venture capital and private equity funding, if they frame their pitches with a socially conscious lens, they have a better better track record of getting money and then and and having you know then getting a setting up a successful business with the kind of capital which is you know it's not bad socially conscious is terrific but it is that it, it is frustrating because it's like well you have to be one thing you have to be warm and fuzzy what's well, not budging there well what's so interesting i mean it's so funny though so many women i talked to said they founded a company and they would take it to vcs and some would ask them so who's your white male co-founder going to be there was one indian woman and people would say who's your white you got to you got to get a white male to be your partner i don't know and... how you wouldn't just like turn over some furniture and walk out or give up i always said why didn't you give up that's amazing there was a, a bunch of women said that they would pitch their idea and the target audience was women and the vcs would say i don't know you know my wife never had a problem with that there was this one woman shanlin ma <laughs> she's the ceo of a wedding company or like a wedding registry planning company called zola it's incredibly popular and um she pitched her idea with all this data to these vcs and it was a bunch of men and they said i don't know let's like pull in an assistant in here there's a woman let's pull in my assistant she's a woman let's get her thought on this she's like this is a business i'm giving you numbers and projections they said i don't know the wedding industry just doesn't seem like that big of a business (laughs) of course it's a 50 billion dollar business and now her business is doing great but so there was just this disconnect between the older white men who were meeting with her and the actual understanding of the market data so i think to answer your question about why the investors are not um, adequately understanding the opportunity, a lot of that comes down to the fact that the VC industry is has not changed in many years. It's not like Wall Street, which has gone through various reckonings, because those are public companies. They're transparent. They report data. Any company, whether it's a tech giant like Google or Apple, these are companies that are reporting gender and racial diversity data that put it on their website every year. And every sort of study will tell you that the best way to to drive change is to have transparency. Up until about 2017, 2018, there was no measure of the diversity in, in the Silicon Valley financial institutions. And these are small groups of people who make a couple of big bets a year. 
And they're but hoping really influence markets. Really influence it markets can influence the price of tomatoes yeah, if I mean, they decide to support something that needs tomato juice. You know. Well, but it really. I mean, like there are these crazy examples, like SoftBank, which has this 300-year vision fund. It will just pour hundreds of millions of dollars into an idea, like an Uber, if they See, think it's a good idea. See, we crashed. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we crashed. Um, uh, or the Uber TV show. So, but there are these. There's so much money at play. And there's a, a lot of really interesting data about how this is not malicious, right? There's a lot of data showing that male investors, uh, I'm sorry, male investors are half as likely as female investors to invest in a female-led company. So that's really interesting. So statistically, a female investor is twice as likely to invest in a female-led company than a male investor is. The problem there is, is that women represent a very small percentage of the decision makers at VCs. I think it's something like 13% of decision makers at VCs, and I'm gonna have to double check that. But the idea is that women aren't represented in terms of the powerful positions in those venture capital firms. And so therefore, if they're twice as likely to invest in women, then you don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of female uh, founders getting, getting capital. Right. And a lot of that comes down to pattern matching. I want to make it really clear. I'm not pointing fingers. I don't think this is malicious. A lot of data in my book points to the fact that female leaders are sometimes more likely to generate high returns than male leaders. So if people care about making money, they should be investing in female founders. The reason why they're not is because they're looking for someone, oftentimes, who reminds them of Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. So many of these investments are made at the early stage before there is a track record, before there's revenue or uh, you know profitability or anything to show the success of the actual business. So many investors are bidding on ideas and founders. Mm -hmm. They're looking for founders who have a track record, and they're looking for founders who remind them of a founder who succeeded in the past. And I have a quote in there of a VC saying he would invest in anyone who reminds him of Mark Zuckerberg. So this is a vicious cycle. It perpetuates itself. How much, how much does the Elizabeth Holmes thing hurt the cause of women trying to break this logjam? Look, I loved the Elizabeth Holmes podcast. <laughs> I love the I TV show. I consumed it in all forms of media. Um, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating and I think I, I mean, I and I have to say, just as a as a consumer of content, I really enjoyed all of the content around it. Having said that, it's a it really is a bummer, for lack of a better way to put it, that when you ask people like, think of a female CEO in tech, the first person who comes to mind is Elizabeth Holmes. There are billboards of Amanda Seyfried playing Elizabeth Holmes all over LA. That's who people think of, but she is not representative of what female leaders are like. Especially in tech, because that, you know, that yeah. firm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, she was a total failure. Right. And it was never a tech firm. And yeah, I mean, it was an idea, you know, it was, an, it was a failed idea, but I think that um, it's very easy to glom onto these archetypes. I mean, you think about Hollywood, like there are a couple of archetypes. There's the, you know, there's the Silicon Valley bro in a hoodie archetype. There's mm -hmm. the man in a suit, Wall Street CEO archetype. Mm -hmm. And they're just, the archetype of a female CEO is an Elizabeth Holmes type. You know, a, a young white blonde woman who fails. That's like what people have in their head. And it's just not, accurate and it and it's and also to me what drives me crazy and one reason i wanted to tell mm -hmm. the stories of about 60 women in this book is there is such an amazing diversity such a wide range of different ways that women are leading and they look and sound and do things in entirely their own ways i mean there are never women in the book who are introverts they figured out how to use their introversion as a superpower in business i think that's so cool because it totally breaks the stereotype of what a leader is supposed to be like I want to ask you about that. I want to, I've like 
jotting down things. I want to ask you before we move off of it, uh, venture capitals, what about hedge funds? So I don't go into hedge funds. I don't go into hedge funds. They are dealing mostly in public companies, and they're shorting and they're doing long bets. Mm -hmm. But that because they are they are also they are more regulated because they're dealing with public companies because of the um, uh, SEC regulations. But it is a different deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like the venture capital is uh, the 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 power in venture capital is that there's an idea or an entrepreneur they believe in. They can pour in tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars long before a company is profitable. So they can determine whether or not an idea becomes a successful business. And I think it has massive impact on our society. If you think about the way tech companies have changed everything. Yeah, just look at our phones and the yeah. half, of the, half of the apps. Um, let me ask you the opposite of that. Is there, do you find when you talk to, the, especially the female founders, like is there, a, is there a scenario where small can be beautiful? Is everybody aiming for the big IPO or is there a world where you have a nice, I, I hate to call it a nice little business, but you have a, you have a business that is profitable and sustainable and boy, in, in, some, in some ways that seems like a pretty big home run. You know, I was just talking to a bunch of, um, of, of women and some were saying that, you know, a number of female CEOs are wary of taking VC dollars because if you take VC dollars, you might be pushed to grow faster than you feel comfortable with. And you might be pushed to grow faster than, than is a good idea for your actual business. So I do think, especially because they're dealing with VCs who may not fully understand their vision, there is a little bit more caution around getting into a relationship with someone who's going to pressure you to have a quick outcome or a five-year outcome. I think there are also plenty of women who are incredibly ambitious. They want to create multi-billion dollar companies. They want to be successful. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to do it with an additional purpose. I mean, women are more likely to found purpose-driven companies. So it's not just about generating profits, but also having an environmental impact or helping people, whether it's through health tech or um, social impact stuff. But I think, it's a, I think it's a mix. I think women have also seen how easy it is to get taken down by the media um, with numerous mm -hmm. examples. So I think there is a caution there, but at the same time, they understand that having a public persona can help market your company. So I think it's a big mix of things, but I've seen plenty of women who are incredibly, incredibly ambitious and, and really want to achieve the same kind of success that men have. And we really haven't seen women at the level of the Jeff Bezos's and Mark Zuckerberg's. We just haven't in terms of the self-made women. Even more so than like politics, like that seems like the yeah, last. Yeah, that's why that's I wanted to focus frontier, on this yeah. field because there was just such a disparity and such a crazy gender gap. I thought it also interesting in in a common thread through a lot of the interviews and anecdotes was that women, even women founded purpose driven, you know, kind of socially conscious companies. Their first and foremost instinct was there's a market here. There is profits to be made here. Yeah, it will you know social good is fantastic, but they. But the, imp the, the impetus is not, let's do this because it's a good thing to do, but let's do this because there's a, there's a market here, there are profits here. And also there are a lot of industries or areas where people are like, oh, that's philanthropy. Like, you want to deal with food waste? Like, that's philanthropy. Like, that's just garbage. Like, maybe it'll help the environment, but you're not going to make money on that. And there's an amazing founder in the book, and she's saying, no, if we can take this food waste and turn it into a profitable business and sell the the leftover cauliflower for cauliflower pizza crust or whatever it is like and there's the so much juice. demand or the green juice yeah. you know a 13 dollar green juice doesn't need to be made with pristine um lettuce you know pieces of lettuce that you would buy at a grocery store you can make it with the scraggly stuff that people don't want to eat but yet would be perfect for a green juice so this idea that it's actually much better over the long run to take a social or environmental problem and solve it with a sustainable profitable exactly. business because then you don't have to worry about the winds of change blowing philanthropy dollars somewhere else. 
the the book i i love these stories the book is full of that spark of inspiration i was standing in line at the supermarket i was stuck in traffic i was do, like that spark of inspiration i was like when i talk to entrepreneurs i always try to yeah. what was that spark what was that spark um i want to talk a little bit more about hollywood stuff but but in the in the very thirty thousand foot view i think one thing in in reading the book there's different there's different examples there's you know, as women, especially started in the 70s and 80s, really going into business, there seems to have always been kind of a debate in that, like, do you make do you make the argument that women are as capable as any male CEO can handle? There's nothing, you know, that there is no there is no difference in anything else's gender bias, or is there an argument to be made that women do lead differently, and we should respect and appreciate what? different you know what different leadership styles bring to any sector i don't know and i, I, know, I know it doesn't have to be or. black or i don't white. think they're either or i think they're both i think they're both and i think mm -hmm. that um it's been interesting like looking at the data about leading and managing in crisis women have amazing performance managing in crisis especially if you think about the the financial crisis managing through the pandemic and and in some ways they're leading very differently than male ceos but in other ways maybe male CEOs are trying to emulate or should try to emulate them, particularly in times of crisis, when say things like empathy matter, matter more both to employees and customers. So I think that um, the overwhelming thing that struck me in interviewing hundreds of people and, and reading all these academic studies is that while we may have a couple of ideas of what leadership looks like or what good leadership looks like, in fact, there are many different skills that can be used for good leadership. and. The, the leaders who were most successful were those who didn't try to force themselves into this box or this stereotype or try to fit a model of what leadership looked like in the 70s, <laughs> but instead were saying, here's what I'm really good at, and here's how I can hire people around me to fill in the things that I know nothing about, and here's how I can lean into the things that I'm really good at, whether it's being an amazing listener and able to negotiate deals better because you're an introvert or leading with gratitude and using that gratitude to focus on long-term results or um, or bringing in perspectives from across your team or across your company, like that kind of communal bringing everyone together leadership. The people who were able to figure out their skill set and lean into it were the ones who I saw able to make the most progress and also feel good about the way they were they were managing their company. I think for so long people have, and I talked to women about this, they felt like they had to wear the boxy suit and act in a the, certain way the with the shoulder pads. <laughs> shoulder pads are back, it's okay. But um, but felt like they had to force themselves to act, act a certain way. And now- Outguy the guys yeah, sometimes. And now that there are more women in the room, I think that everyone should be able to lead in a way that they feel is more authentic to them. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from CNBC's Julia Borston after this pause for monetization. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself 
own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. We're back with more from CNBC's Julia Borston on her new book, When Women Lead. You've been a business reporter for a long time. I know you knew a lot of this intuitively, but what really surprised you from your reporting? I hadn't read academic research like this in a really long time. And I ended up going down so many rabbit holes about how about good leadership, about female leadership. And I just read, I mean, literally 300 studies. And it was so interesting to look at the fact that social scientists are studying everything from how when you use humor in the workplace, women are judged more harshly to, um, you know, to the fact that like athletes are more successful as CEOs and why is that? So just, there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. stuff in there, but to the point of Hollywood, since, since you cover Hollywood, there was some amazing data about the power of Hollywood to create archetypes. And I was blown away by the studies, and there's some great stuff out of the Gina Davis Institute, Mm, just about mm -hmm. gender gaps in Hollywood. But also, the one thing that I keep on thinking about is I show movies to my kids, um, because we show them a lot of movies from from when I was growing up, from the 80s. There were a bunch of movies in the early 80s that made the heroes these young, white, geeky men. And they were techie, and they were solving problems with technology, and the women were just their sidekicks whether it was weird, you know, weird science or war games and these movies, which were great. I rewatched a bunch of them with my family when I was writing this book. They were great, but they really didn't have women in that tech world. And there was this amazing correlation between the rise of this this new type of hero in Hollywood. And set the image, our, set the our image. pop culture image yes. of the tech geek really was. I was about 14 when War Games came out, yeah. so I was the absolute target. Yeah, And the, the message couldn't have been clear. Yeah. This is a guy's This is a guy's Tech game. is a guy's game. The girl is there to go on the adventure, but she can't help with the technology stuff. So there were all of these movies that came out, and over the next 20 years, there was a 20 percentage point decline in the number of women who enrolled in computer science as their major in college. 
Now, obviously, there were a lot of other things that were going on as well, but the cultural archetype was that tech was a young guy's game. And the fact that there were all these women who did who majored in computer science before that era is crazy to me. It started to come up. It's That curve has definitely started to change. Um, but I think that it really reminded me how powerful Hollywood is. And look, my husband works in Hollywood. <laughs> I live here in LA. I'm so, I cover these companies. But that's why I think the work of companies like Hello Sunshine mm-hmm. or Lena Waithe with Hillman Grad, both of which I wrote about in my book, I think they're so important because just like the tech companies are powerful, the Hollywood entertainment companies are powerful because those are stereotypes and archetypes that are exported around the world. It is, it's, uh, you know, some, some have called it soft power and it is fascinating. And I think, I think it is, as much as the ICBMs, that's what helped win the Cold War. Blue jeans and yeah. Elvis Presley yeah. and the Beatles and Madonna and you know it just I I really do think that it was that it was that and that's why Hollywood culture. and pop culture can be used for a force of good as well <laughs> I mean and you think about you know I think about Black Panther and Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel and the fact that now my kids have all these action heroes who mm-hmm. are women and they're not just dressed in miniskirts like they were when I started trying to buy them for them you know a decade ago because I think. I think Hollywood understands um, that the audience is not just young white men, which was, you know, that's not all they should be marketing towards. And so we're really seeing, a, I think, a shift in some of the imagery that's getting out there. Well, yet again, in a business context, you're leaving money on the table. Exactly. And I think that, that, that there's been a dawning realization there. Yeah, making movies like Black Panther or Wonder Woman are not philanthropy, it's to, because there's a huge financial opportunity. What specific, because you said you spoke with Lena Waithe and Hillman Grad, where she's been doing some really yeah. interesting, and they are dogged over there. Yeah. Same thing with Hello Sunshine. Very impactful company, doing a lot. Incredibly impressive CEO and Sarah Harden. Um, tell me any anything specifically about entrepreneurship or about the specific challenges of Hollywood and content well, that the, stand out to What you. I think is so important, and I talked to Sarah Harden um, and Reese Witherspoon about this, is this idea of authentic authorship. If the studios are all run by white men, they're not going to understand the vast majority of their audience. <laughs> and I think that's why we've seen the studios become become far more diverse in their leadership. We have people like Donna Langley running Universal, but also their investments in um, a diverse assortment of filmmakers because it works. And so what's so interesting is, you know, you see Hello Sunshine, they're saying, what are the shows that we would want to see? And what are the sh- who are the filmmakers that can act- adequately tell those stories? Um, they talked about how when they were making little fires everywhere, they're like, what should the writer's room look like? It it should look like the people in the show and the characters in the show and represent those stories. And look, it worked out really well for them. They had that that big exit to Candle Media, um, that Hello Sunshine sale to Candle Media, because they're all about figuring out how to p- pair mm-hmm. the, the content creators with a hungry mm-hmm. audience. At a very high valuation. At a very high valuation. A nine hundred million dollar valuation, and we can we can talk about like was that there was a lot of industry debate about that valuation. Yeah. If that had been you know if it had been Ronald Witherspoon as opposed to Reese, would we have had the same level of valuation? Maybe Ronald Witherspoon has been making great deals for a long time now. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, but, I, it, but it's a debate. And look, and Reese Witherspoon is a huge star. But I think um, you know what's been amazing about watching Hello Sunshine is there was this period where all of these streaming services launched. Do you remember that? There was yeah. like an Apple TV. You were right. probably there at these events. I remember going to the Apple TV announcement, and there was a Hulu announcement, and every one of these announcements seemed to feature a show from Hello Sunshine. <laughs> and so I think that these studio, the, or the streamers, 
were figuring out how to leverage the Hello Sunshine brand while Hello Sunshine was figuring out how to leverage the streamers to, to boost their valuation. But I think um, I was just really impressed by this idea of the importance of them having financial success is that it shows that women can do this and it shows that it could be done. Um, and Lena Waithe, I think, takes this idea of authentic authorship to the next level and she tells very specific stories and shows the universal appeal of very specific stories. When I interviewed her, she was telling me that, um, I don't know if you remember Master of None, mm -hmm, she did sure. that, fam that very famous Thanksgiving episode mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. she tells a story of, of her coming out to her family and, and you know, that experience over Thanksgiving dinner. And that is a very specific experience. But she said that people all over the country would come up to her and say that was the most amazing episode. It reminded me so much of my family. She said these these straight white dudes would come up to her and say, I related so much to that episode. <laughs> but the way she thinks about it is that was so specific that in a way there, there's something about the specificity that people can relate to. If you just had a generic Thanksgiving dinner with families fighting or not talking to each other, whatever it is, it wouldn't feel as real. The specificity makes it feel real. And also I think she's really proven that you can take something which may seem like a niche story and show that niche stories have universal appeal and people want to connect with content that feels real and different than the same stuff they've been watching. My last question for you, I always, I love to ask people this question. How, what was your process for writing? So you've done all your research and I, oh my God, I know the feeling of like, you, you know, you, you know that you're looking at deadlines and you're looking at, you know, blank files or pages. Did you write at the computer? Did you write longhand? Did you write late at night, like many working moms do? Um, I, you know those really giant, like post-it notes that are three feet tall. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Like yeah. those big GM, uh -huh. like and sometimes I have three M. Yeah, they're sticky, sticky post-it yeah. notes. So I would do all the interviews. I would have the, I would automatically transcribe them using Otter, which mm -hmm. is an amazing app. Mm -hmm. um, and after each interview, I would go through and re-listen to it. I would take notes on the themes. And then I would take these giant post-it notes. I have these giant poster boards all around our house. And I would write down like what category uh -huh. these women's characteristics filled into. It's very smartly organized in not a company-by-company company format, yes. but theme and focus. And it's really good reading. So I would have all of these, these giant posters basically all over the house with different names and themes. And I would like run around like a crazy person writing in Sharpie on these giant poster boards. <laughs> Terry Matheson. And so exactly. So that's how I would organize the ideas. And then I would sometimes just sit down and just write someone's story, um, going back to the transcript and just like, I, would, I found the story so amazing. Sometimes I would cry when I was interviewing people. I found, I mean, the stories are so inspiring and in the depths of the pandemic to get to talk to these women i that's why i love doing this is because i was so inspired and it makes you feel so hopeful about the world that there are leaders like this that are trying to fix problems so i would sometimes just sit down and and write um but the truth is is that because i wake up very early for work on the weekends i would try to wake up at the same time and i would sometimes i'd wake up at five and i would just write for like four hours before my family would bother me and I would just lock myself away and without the interruptions of anyone you could really get a lot done so um I thought it was really fun I really want to write another book <laughs>
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.